1: To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, i Andy, your host, and today is Thursday, so it's time for the regular visit of my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me?
0: I am. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. And today, folks, we're going to be continuing, or rather Peter is going to be continuing his presentation on the real story behind the bad war by M.S. King. This is going to be part three and uh, share an interesting bit of information with you. I actually got in touch with um, Mike, Um, as I said, I think on the first show I was going to send it over. I forgot of course being me but I sent the second uh, a message I think last week he got back to me he was aware of these this series of shows that uh, Peter's doing he said one of my readers alerted me to this that's wonderful and I've since been in touch with him and he will be a guest on this show uh, at some point next month I'm not sure exactly when but he is booked So he will be coming up and uh, it's nice to have the endorsement of the author himself on the great work and analysis that Peter is doing. So that being said, uh, Peter, where would you like to start us off with part three of this presentation?
0: Well, so far, we've looked at some of the seeds of the future world wars, starting with 1848 and uh, and then Section 2 dealing with the hideous First World War, which led to the collapse of the Russian Empire of the German Empire, the Austrian Empire, three great empires, and uh, now we're moving into this third section of the nationalism versus globalism. It's so important to know context. And M. S. King's book, *The The Real The Bad War: The Real Story of World War II* that you were never taught, um, is that it's comprehensive. Uh, it's it's an overview, and he has a lot of the banned, uh, little known, or um, the um, uh, uncomfortable truths. And as we know, truth does not fear investigation. And so for us to understand the most pivotal influential event of the 20th century, the second world war, which has to a large extent created the chaotic shambles of a mess that we've got in the world today, it's vital to know what led up to it. The context is everything. And uh, uh, so this epic book, which my um, King just informed me this um a week that uh, I seem to have an early edition. He's come out with a new edition that's got 100 more pages. I've got the 250-page version, and uh, apparently he's got a more up-to-date edition, which I'm looking forward to scouring. But at any rate, so we get to 1919, Section 3, the competing forces of nationalism and globalism, or communism. And that's basically the the big battle uh, that has So split the world in the 20th century, nationalism or globalism, other words, communism. And so here at last we get to the character who has been demonized uh, the most in the 20th century, and that's Adolf Hitler. Well, he, as we learned in the second section, he was quite a war hero in the uh, first world war. He was a frontline soldier four years on the battlefront Uh, mainly around Ypres in Belgium. He was twice decorated for serious injuries, sustained like the Purple Heart for American soldiers, twice more for conspicuous bravery on the battlefield. He had the Iron Cross. Uh, And uh, he was four years in the front line. He was gassed. Uh, He took four months to recover. He was actually uh, blinded. Uh, I've been to the very church where he was treated um, after being gassed in the battle in Ypres. Interesting that two of the most prominent figures in the Second World War, uh, both Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, were both painters. Although, as is pointed out by my King, Adolf Hitler was by far the superior painter. And uh, I've seen uh, well over a hundred of his pictures and he's got some of them in the book here. And um, there's no doubt Adolf Hitler was actually a remarkably talented painter, although most people do not want to acknowledge that. Also interesting that while Winston Churchill spent a few months at the Ypres battlefront as a colonel, um, Adolf Hitler spent all four years as a frontline soldier in the trenches. Um, uh, One can also say there's lots of contrast between Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, but we'll get to that later. Well, in 1919, Adolf Hitler was 30 years old. He was self-educated. He was an artist from Austria. He had very little money and he certainly had no political Connections, but he had ability at or oratory. He could speak well. He also was something of an organizational genius and his marketing talents. I mean, think that he he designed the very recognizable symbol, the Hakenkreuz, the, um, the swastika, which was in fact you look at all the different Nazi um, regalia and uh, the different marketing symbols, very easily identifiable and. Um, Even though it's been pretty much demonized by Hollywood and a lot of the media, uh, there's no questioning that he knew how to make a brand and how to do designs and how to capture people's imagination and so on. And so Adolf Hitler first comes to the fore with mesmerizing beer hall speeches, which stopped onlookers in their tracks as he denounced the Versailles Treaty. The November criminals, the Marxists, the press, the international bankers who had led to the catastrophic decline in Germany, where Germany, from one of the world's great empires and industrial powers, was now at the mercy of international forces, basically disarmed with a force less than 100,000, having lost all of their overseas territories and having lost much of their own territory, where Germans were now living under Polish, Lithuanian, or French and Belgian or Danish and other occupation. And uh, all of this, of course, including the phenomenal debt of having to pay for all sides of the war, crippling debt, which was leading to people starving and uh, hideous scenes of soldiers who may have lost a limb in the war, wearing the Iron Cross, sitting on the sidewalk, having to beg for money to survive. Absolutely unacceptable. And he joined the German Workers' Party, the DAP. his member number seven. So <clears throat> when you've got a single-digit membership number, that's <laughs> one of the founder members almost. Well, he started to recruit the unemployed young men, disgruntled ex-soldiers like who felt betrayed by the war and by the government. Uh, he appealed to veterans because he himself was a veteran. And uh, he sought to draw recruits away from the right-wing nationalists and the left-wing socialist parties and so he took the words national and socialist and he added it to the german workers party to form the nsdap or the national socialist uh, german workers party and uh, now although hollywood always used the word nazi and nazis um they never called themselves that they were national socialists um that was the term that they used and he was trying to draw people away from the red so he used a red flag and then to draw people from the right he used a symbol of the ancient Aryans of Asia. Uh, the swastika is in fact a very respected symbol in the Hindu religion in particular and you'll see it in many Hindu temples it's, and it, you will see it in, in Saxon artistry and amongst the Vikings and the Saxons. Uh, the swastika was always a symbol of, of the Aryans of the the light-skinned people and Uh, Even today, amongst the Hindus, it would be a Brahmin symbol of of the the lightest Indians, the Aryans, as they called them, uh, who would be the ones who rule. So uh, at this point, he then comes up with Winston Churchill on the 8th of February 1920. Interesting that Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty who planned the Lusitania sinking and uh, the Gallipoli disaster, uh, he is a strong supporter of Zionism, having a Jewish state in Palestine. He supports the Balfour Declaration, but he's opposed to Jewish communism. This is interesting uh, because they both are controlled by the same Rothschild crime syndicate. Uh, but uh, interesting that in February 1920, here's an article that appeared in Illustrated Sunday Herald. Uh, entitled Zionism versus Bolshevism, written by none other than Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill argued that while Jews should support Zionism, they should oppose communism, even though there seems to be a real link. But still, this future Prime Minister of Britain railed against the schemes of the international Jews. In fact, if you if you just gave this quote in its own, many of you would assume that... Uh, this was written by Adolf Hitler, but actually it was written by Winston Churchill. So a quote from Winston Churchill's article, Zionism versus Bolshevism, uh, published uh, in the Sunday Herald, the Illustrate Sunday Herald. This movement amongst the Jews is not new. From the days of Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx and down to Trotsky in Russia and Belakun of Hungary and Rosa Luxemburg of Germany and Emma Goldman in the United States, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization. And for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development, envious malevolence or malice, and impossible equality has been steadily growing. It has played, as a modern writer, Mrs. Webster, has so ably shown, a definitely recognizable part in the tragedy of the French Revolution. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now, at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe, America, have gripped the Russian people by the hair of the heads and have become the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. And so here, uh, Winston Churchill describes Bolshevism as being overwhelmingly run by Jewish conspiracy as being a new plague bacillus, a new bubonic plague, which is going to threaten the lives of the people of Europe even more than the bubonic plague did in the 1300s. Interesting that he uh, writes that because he, of course, became one of the big three, along with Joseph Stalin, promoting the very same Bolshevik revolution to take over the whole of Eastern Europe, betraying not only Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, but also Poland, on whose behalf the British were meant to have gotten involved in the Second World War. So, very interesting, a quote that's a bit of a banned quote. You're not really meant to refer to this because it doesn't fit With the popular narrative, but there we go. In 1921 to 1922, Vladimir Lenin worked to starve millions of people to death. In fact, 10 million Russians died of starvation just between 1921 and 1922. This is not the same as the Holodomor coming up in Ukraine in 1929 into the 1930s, which is under Stalin. This is under Lenin. 10 million Russians deliberately starved to death by the communists, the Bolsheviks of the Soviet Union, in order to kill Russian resistance to the Bolshevik takeover in Russia. And so uh, this planned deliberate famine, uh, destroying food, destroying farms, uh, destroying landowners, uh, imposing price controls, confiscating foodstuffs, um, causing farmers to actually lose money by farming, and compounding the shortage, was that the communists, the reds, kept seizing the seeds of the farmers so that they weren't able to plant for the next year. And this horrific famine was used to selectively feed those regions that were submissive to the commissars and starve out those who were loyal to the so-called whites. Uh, so it was a battle between the red communists and the white Russians, or the, or the Christian Russians. And so starving the Russians and the Ukrainians who were resorting to eating grass and even cannibalizing the bodies of the dead. This horror escalated when Lenin deliberately blocked all foreign relief efforts and the death toll reached 10 million before Lenin allowed foreign aid, which came from United States overwhelmingly. And uh, it was said without the uh, mostly American aid, the death toll for Lenin's cruelty would have more than doubled. And so some of the horrific pictures of piles of emaciated bodies, pictures worse than anything you've ever seen, uh, uh, unless you've seen this. But these pictures are not normally allowed to be shown, such as Ms. King puts in. Interestingly, in July 1921, the New York Times, who claims to print all the news that's fit to print, which means anything they don't print is not worth reporting on, publishes another extraordinary Soviet claim that six million Jews face extermination by white counter-revolutionary Christians in Russia. Uh, And so there you've got the six million popping up yet again, um, in this case, uh, meant to be being killed in Russia by the white Christians um, who are resisting the red communists. 1922, the Reds finally won the Russian Civil War primarily through terror, starvation, and so through the Red Terror, the Red Famine, and the Red Civil War, in 1922, Lenin and Trotsky formally established the Soviet Union with a capital city in Moscow, the capital of the Russian Empire being St. Petersburg, which now gets renamed to Leningrad, and now Moscow, the workers' city, becomes the capital city instead of St. Petersburg, which had always been Russia's capital before. So the former Russian Empire is now known as the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. And so at this point, the communists spans the whole of Eurasia, the largest country on earth, uh, spanning more time zones, and including more ethnic republics, but 129 different nations within this great Soviet Union. And uh, uh, of course, the Russians are the largest, most populous of those, but it's 129 nations under the control of the Bolsheviks, who themselves are not even not even Russian. And the criminality and the brutality of the Soviets has shocked the world. I mean, even Winston Churchill is condemning it, even though he'll later do more to help them than almost anyone else except FDR. And so the communists make public declarations. Their goal is to overthrow all nations. And for this reason, every American Republican president uh, in the 20s and 30s refuses to recognize the Soviet Union. President Harding, President Coolidge, President Hoover, three Republican presidents were consistently said they could not recognise the criminal Soviet Union uh, with its barbarous anti-Christian revolutionary uh, totalitarianism and uh, everything that is against democracy and freedom. So they would not be recognised at all. In October 1922, there's the March on Rome. Benito Mussolini rises to the fore, leading the fascists to save Italy from the communist revolutionaries. Remember, that following the Bolshevik revolution, the Bolsheviks are organising revolutions all over the world, particularly in Europe. In fact, in South Africa, we even had a communist uprising, autumn 1922, uh, which led to hideous scenes of violence in our streets, but again, most people don't know that. Um, That's not in this book, I'm just mentioning. And so Benito Mussolini, to prevent a Bolshevik revolution in Italy, he organises this March on Rome to act before the communists can seize the country. And uh, before 60,000 people at the Congress in Naples, um, Mussolini declares, our program is simple, we want to rule Italy. And his black shirts capture the strategic points of Italy uh, to protect them from the Reds. And Mussolini leads a march of 30,000 men on the capital city of Rome. And on 28th of October 1922, a very sympathetic King Victor Emmanuel III whose father had been assassinated by communists in 1900. King Victor Emmanuel III grants political power to Mussolini, recognizes him as the true leader of the country, and he's supported by the war veterans, by the business class, and Mussolini is super popular. And the corrupt left-wing political parties are shut down, and under il Dusi's rule, the pro-business fascist party takes control, restores order to... Italy famously making the trains run on time for the first time and uh, making sure everything works well. And fascism combines an honest and sound monetary system with a mix of free enterprise and some state regulated corporations. So uh, he says communism is a fraud, a phantom and a blackmail. By 1923, France invades Germany's Ruhr region, industrialized region, the oil-rich, I should say the coal-rich region, after Germany was not able to keep up with the extortion payments to pay for all sides of the war in its um, very uh, weakened state. uh, Germany, uh, poverty-stricken, hunger-driven, people dying of starvation, literally hundreds of thousands starving, and uh, so France takes advantage to invade and take a huge section, of the Rhineland and uh, they start to extort more. They literally dismantle German industry. They take the timber, they take the coal, they chop down whole forests. And in further humiliation, with 60,000 troops from Belgium, from France and the French occupying Germany, they even brought French African colony troops in to the occupation. And while German soldiers went hungry and uh, German children were starving, the Allies were collecting the stolen loot of physical German commodities, literally with machine gun posts in the corners of the streets. They were walking in and just looting stores, taking German food and supplies. And remember, this was not just being done by France, it was being done by Belgium as well. So this myth that Belgium was neutral uh, is really a farce, because Belgium wasn't neutral in the First World War or the Second World War, not before and uh, either of those wars, and there were having written and practical agreements uh, and military alliances with France and with Britain. So this business of Belgium being neutral uh, doesn't really face the test. And the Germans had no real opportunity to resist. They were disarmed, they were humiliated, and they were hungry. And there's some shocking pictures of French soldiers really abusing, threatening uh, civilians with their bayonets at the end of their rifles. And, you know, these sort of things um, are not normally reported on, but this is part of the context of the pre-war era, um, what was going on between the First and the Second World Wars. So with Allied troops occupying the Ruhr and, and being looted by the French and Belgians, and the German mark losing its value in inflation because all Germany's gold had been taken away, Germany in 1922 to 1923 went through horrific hyperinflation. And the socialist Weimar government, which was mostly run by the Warburg and Rothschild Central Bank, um, massively expanded the money supply, uh, apparently to keep up with the crushing debt imposed by the Versailles Treaty. But it also kept the so-called Weimar Republic's um, economy afloat at the price of destroying the German economy and impoverishing the people. So the life savings of German people was wiped out. Pensions wiped out. Prices doubled every two days for 20 straight months. Workers had to be paid daily so that they could rush to the shops before the prices doubled again. And the Germans referred to their devalued money as a uh, Judefetzen or Jewish confetti. it became absolutely worthless. People needed wheelbarrows full of paper money to go shopping and a wheelbarrow full of 20 uh, billion marks might not be able to buy a loaf of bread. And, uh, uh, 20 billion marks would not even be able to buy a postage stamp. And people literally start to use the Deutsche Mark in order to uh, be uh, wallpaper. I and mean, it was that uh, valueless. And this led to more chaos and more attempts by communists to stage revolutions. And just as during the war, the Marxist trade unions called for strikes at a time when Germany was most vulnerable and even under foreign occupation in the western region of the Ruhr. So to pacify the striking workers, the Weimar, Uh, Reichsbank pumped even more paper money into the economy, just increasing debt and devaluing the currency even further. And so there was real righteous anger boiling over at this hyperinflation and the new French-Belgian military occupation of the Rhineland. And so at this point, this young Adolf Hitler, um, artist, uh, ex-army veteran, decided the time was right to seize power from the local government in Munich, the Bavarian a provincial government and hoping that war veterans would join his revolt and move against the national government in Berlin. He used a rally in the Munich Beer Hall, uh, the so-called Beer Hall Putsch of the 8th of November 1923. And this local uprising of Putsch was ignited by a powerful speech by Hitler, but failed to sustain itself when soldiers opened fire on these nationalist rebels, killing 16 of them. And Adolf Hitler and others were arrested, tried for treason. But at his trial, Adolf Hitler used the occasion to spread his ideas, which were published in the newspapers. The judge was so impressed that he issued a lenient sentence for the rebels. And although the Munich coup had failed, the legend of the great orator grew, attracting more followers every day, and membership in the NSDAP uh, reached 20,000 by the end of the year. And crowds turned out to support him, and General Ludendorff, one of the heroes, of the Battle of Tannenberg, uh, he also supported the National Socialist uh, German Workers' Party, the NSDAP. January 21st, 1924, Vladimir Lenin died. And uh, Vladimir Lenin was extremely bad, but Joseph Stalin, Secretary of the Communist Party Central Committee was, um, if anything, worse. And uh, he skillfully outmaneuvered the Red Army leader uh, Levy Bronstein, or um, as we know, Leon Trotsky, uh, to take the leadership of the Soviet Union. That's quite extraordinary because Trotsky was the hero of the Soviet Revolution. If you've read Animal Farm, um, Snowball, the hero of the revolution, is based on uh, Trotsky. And uh, uh, Napoleon, who's based on on, uh, the character of Stalin, is the one who took no part in actual fighting but later ousted Uh, the hero of the revolution, to seize the farm and then to set his dogs, which are based on the Czech or the NKVD, uh, to Axe Snowball, who um, is based on Trotsky. So you get the idea where uh, George Orwell picked up his whole plot in Animal Farm. So Stalin expelled Trotsky, the hero of the revolution, the leader of the Red Army, expelled him from the party, then from the Soviet Union itself, And finally, he had his Marxist rival axed, literally axed uh, with an ice pick through the brain by a Soviet agent in Mexico, showing the long arm of the NKVD could even reach him there. Well, Stalin's brutality instilled fear not only in the enslaved people of the Soviet Union, the Christians, the whites, but in the hearts of his fellow communists. This Stalin believed that anyone who challenged his leadership needed to go, literally, and uh, he was such an egomaniac, he named a whole city after himself, Stalingrad, which today is Volgograd. He erected statues of himself in the state town squares, and he purged many of his own comrades, even his wives from the party. He dumped his first wife. He drove his second wife uh, and one of his sons also to suicide. Uh, It must have been a bundle of laughs to live with. But Joseph Stalin's chilling crimes, um, it's just extraordinary that it's basically ignored. And to think that Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the Second World War referred to Uncle Joe, and uh, speaking about him as one of the leaders of the free world, it's beyond ridiculous, it's nauseatingly disgusting. Here's a great forbidden history quote uh, from Russian author and historian, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And bear in mind, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a hero of the Red Army who had fought in the Second World War, who was an artillery officer and a decorated officer. And uh, he was imprisoned and and served years in the Gulag archipelago in the concentration camps in Arctic hellholes uh, of Siberia uh, for writing an unguarded comment in a private letter, which of course was checked by the census, in which he referred to the leader, Stalin, as the moustached one. That's it, just the moustached one. That was enough. Uh, to get him uh, eight years uh, slave labor in the Arctic hell of uh, the Gulag. So Stalin, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, you must understand the leading Bolsheviks who took over Russia were not Russians. They, the Bolshevik Jews, hated Russians, they hated Christians, driven by ethnic hatred They tortured and slaughtered millions of Russians without a shred of human remorse. It cannot be overstated. Bolshevism committed the greatest human slaughter of all time. The fact that most of the world is ignorant and uncaring about this enormous crime is proof that the global media is in the hands of the perpetrators. That's a Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote. Well, August 1924, the Doors plan um, this redefines and refinances Germany's reparations debt, which was, of course, totally and utterly impossible. And this was an American uh, leader. This, this man, US Vice President Charles Dawes, uh, he draws up what's called the Dawes plan, it, but actually it had little to do with him. It was actually Zionist bankers uh, who uh, drew up this plan to basically, when Germany completely failed to repay and when the debt would have to be rewritten off. They actually worked out a way of still extorting more money. And so none other than former British Prime Minister David Lloyd George said, the international bankers dictated the Doors reparation settlement. The protocol which was signed between allies and Germany is a triumph of the international financier. Agreement would never have been reached without the brutal intervention of international bankers. They swept statesmen, politicians, and journalists aside. They issued their orders with the imperiousness of absolute monarchs who knew there was no appeal from their ruthless decrees. The Doors report was fashioned by the money kings. And this is the point. What's the context of the Second World War? What's the context of the rise to power of Adolf Hitler? Well, the Versailles Treaty, the Bolshevik Revolution, the hunger. And the brutal treatment and mistreatment of German people, the starvation of German people by uh, bankers, brutal bankers, uh, who literally put widows onto the street, took family farms, put millions of widows onto the streets and took their farms, took their homes, uh, took their pensions. And this created such enormous injustice that the main speech Adolf Hitler gave again and again was just simply entitled Versailles. And that summed up the reason why he was so supported. And when people want to know why did honorable men like Rudolf Hess and uh, Erwin Rommel support Adolf Hitler, one word, Versailles. Versailles was a great evil. And uh, it was to redress this that people elected Adolf Hitler. And that's the context of what's going on in 1920s and 30s. So during his imprisonment of 1924, Adolf Hitler dictated Mein Kampf or my struggle And it was his close associate Rudolf Hess, imprisoned with Hitler, who typed out the dictation for the book, which was published the next year, 1925. And in this book, Adolf Hitler placed the blame for Germany's horrific condition upon a global conspiracy of Marxists and finance capitalists. And according to Hitler, this global conspiracy for world government is directed by Jewish bankers who engineered Germany's loss of the Great War and who had engineered the Russian Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution and the Versailles Treaty, and the resulting hyperinflation, which had devastated Germany and stolen from everyone. And so he accused the elite Marxist Jews of Germany, who controlled the newspapers and the banking. He accused them of fomenting the wars, corrupting art culture and the morality of Europe, and turning the German girls into prostitutes to, to be able to feed their children, war widows, Uh, being employed and being abused by Jewish pimps in Berlin and the Weimar Republic in 800 different brothels and other kinds of sexually orientated businesses in Weimar. And so Mein Kampf combines elements of political manifesto and a bit of an autobiography, along with discussions of history and philosophy and economics. And while it was originally written for the followers of National Socialism, Adolf Hitler couldn't have anticipated how it would have grown in such popularity, making Uh, him, actually a wealthy man, Uh, not that he ever lived extravagantly. He was a very simple living person wearing the same kind of clothes all the time. And uh, he did not uh, invest in his own luxuries at all, aside from making sure he had a good car. And uh, uh, he ate very simply as a vegetarian. Uh, He never smoked, he never drank, very much the opposite of Winston Churchill, uh, who was a real hedonist. But um, Uh, Interestingly, as millions and millions of copies of Mein Kampf sold, uh, Adolf Hitler actually had money to promote his cause and to advance the party. So in 1926, the Zionist David Sarnoff established NBC Radio or National Broadcasting Radio. And David Sarnoff was born in a small Jewish village in Tsarist Russia. He immigrated to New York in 1900 at age he joined the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America and began a 60-year career in electronic communications. And so in 1919, Sonoff is general manager of RCA Radio, and from this, he launched NBC, the first major broadcast network in America. And he's instrumental in building up the AM, broadcasting radio business, which became the preeminent public radio standard for the majority of the 20th century, And during the Second World War, Sarnoff served under General Eisner as communications consultant or psychological warfare department. So Sarnoff, with no military experience, would be awarded the rank of Brigadier General. Can you imagine? Well, when Television America was born under the name of National Broadcast Corporation, the first TV show aired at New York World's Fair was introduced by Sarnoff himself as RCA, NBC, passed down to Sarnoff's eldest son, Robert Sarnoff, and uh, he was one of the husbands of Felicia Schiff Warburg, two of the famous banking families in the world. And Franklin uh, Roosevelt Jr., the son of FDR, was also a husband of Felicia Schiff Warburg, an ex-husband in this case. So interesting, the connection between the Warburg family, the Schiff family, both bankers, uh, and then you've got the uh, Sarnoff family of media, and Franklin de Roosevelt's family. And here you've got them controlling the media and controlling the military, controlling radio, controlling TV. And he was immensely influential. So Sonoff was one of the most powerful media giants of the 20th century. He served as the psychological warfare specialist of the Eisenhower uh, administration. And during the Second World War, he was FDR's top class uh, psychological warfare man and he ran. What was meant to be a commercial news service. 1927, civil war broke out in China as Mao Tse Tung's communists, with the full support of Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union, uh, challenged the Kuomintang, or the KMT, the Nationalist Party of China, under Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek, a strong anti-communist, led the Nationalists, and the communists were led by Mao Tse Tung, who was supported not only by Joseph Stalin, but actually ultimately by the United States of America, too, under FDR, uh, to be able to uh, wage bloody civil war until they finally, in 1949, ousted the nationalists from mainland China. And so between Stalin and Mao Zedong, uh, my king uh, notes here that these two monsters murdered over 100 million people, just between the two of them, uh, some of the worst people in the history of the world. 1929... 1928 Zionist William Pelley takes over CBS radio. So William Pally, who used to be called Paloff, son of Jewish immigrants who'd come from the Ukraine under the czarist Russian Empire. And in 1928, this 27 year old businessman secured the majority ownership of the CBS radio network, of which his father Samuel Paloff had been part owner. Within the next decade, Pelley expanded CBS into national powers with 114 affiliate stations. And during the Second World War, Pali, like Sarnoff of NBC, would also serve under General Eisenhower as a colonel in the psychological warfare branch of the Office of War Information. So, as the king of CBS radio and later CBS TV, Pali, or Palov is without question one of the most powerful figures of the 20th century. With David Sarnoff already controlling RBC, NBC, and Pali, or Palov controlling CBS. The important TV medium uh, and radio medium is firmly under Zionist control. 1928, Stalin seized the last of the Russian farms and all resistors were to be killed. This is part of his five-year plan. The small farmers, the Kulaks, as he called them, of uh, Ukraine were forced into collectivization scheme and the government, not the market, would control output and set the prices And so the land and livestock and equipment became the property of the state, uh, which meant the party. And reluctant farmers, or kulaks, were smeared in the Soviet press as greedy capitalists, even though many of them were just peasant farmers. And those who resisted the state's directive were murdered or imprisoned, and millions and millions died in the Arctic hellholes of Siberia, where they were expelled or were actually brutally just killed on their farms or starved to death after all the food was confiscated and the seed was confiscated and the crops were burned and the farms were burned and the forests were burned. And uh, the Holodomor, as it was called, was absolutely devastating. Uh, Something in the region of 11 million people died in that starvation, that planned famine of the Holodomor, uh, which is death by famine, organized by Joseph Stalin to kill out the private farmers in what he called land reform. And at this time, uh, Joseph Stalin made the quote, the death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of a million is just a statistic. In the late 1920s, the privately owned American Federal Reserve policy of easy money made it profitable for investors to borrow money at artificially low interest rates and then to purchase stocks with the money. This is like two conmen working a mark. The Zionist Fed, pumped out credit while the Zionist press hyped the stock market rally. And as surely as night follows day, a massive bubble was inflated. And so 1929, the Fed suddenly hit the brakes. That's the Federal Reserve Bank, which is not federal, which has no reserves and which isn't a bank. It's a total scam, Uh, but it's a Rothschild controlled uh, entity to basically um, extort the American population at nauseam uh, by charging massive interest on money loaned to the government. And so they suddenly hit the brakes. The breaks with the money supply with a tight money policy. And when the adjustments to the Fed's bubble occurred, the stock market collapsed. The investors, big and small, were ruined. Instead of loosening up the money supply to enable debtors to pay all debt, the Fed tightened even more. And a sudden shortage of currency created a tidal wave of bankruptcies across the United States, destroying millions of businesses and bankrupting millions of farmers, as debt couldn't get their hands on enough money to pay off old loans. And so the well Connected swooped in and buyed up assets at bargain fire sale prices. And the press and the communists and the liberals blamed capitalism. And they blamed the Republican policies for the coming Worldwide Depression. But they deceitfully ignored the deliberate role of Warburg and Rothschild in the Federal Reserve. And interestingly, in later years, the Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan admitted that the Federal Reserve Bank had actually caused the Great Depression, although he added, inadvertently, which is hard to believe. Well, this Great Depression brought about the failure, the the destruction, sabotage of Herbert Hoover's government, which uh, was, in fact, very well-meaning and uh, was in no way to blame because, in fact, the crash occurred in the first week of Herbert Hoover moving into the White House. So while he shouldn't have been blamed because obviously was from forces totally out of his control. And it was organized by the Federal Reserve Bank anyway. But it guaranteed that uh, Herbert Hoover would be a one term president. And it guaranteed bringing Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the ridiculous four five term president, who's the reason why there's now a two term limitation on American president because FDR was just that bad. But the worldwide Great Depression hit Germany especially hard because they would depend on many of the loans from U.S. banks at that time. The people had already been worn out by the war and by the naval blockade, the hunger blockade and the Versailles Treaty and the reparations and the unjust war guilt and the 1920s hyperinflation and chronic unemployment. And there was real fears that Germany might still fall to communism like Russia had formed to the Bolsheviks. And as a result, the NSDAP made its first major electoral breakthrough. As Hitler's party won 6 million votes, 18% of the vote, increasing its seats in the Reichstag in 1932 from 12 to 107. So now, the uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party was second only to the 143 seats held by the Social Democrats. But the Communist Party also gained 23 seats, giving the Communists 77 representatives in the Reichstag. Uh, And, of course, there are many secret communists uh, amongst the Social Democrats. So Germany was uh, at a knife edge. It could fall into communist hands, um, uh, and it was a dangerous point. And so General Leon de Grelle, the very courageous uh, Dutch, uh, the very courageous uh, Belgian volunteer who fought in the Eastern Front, who we uh, went through his book, uh, reviewed his book some time back earlier this year. Leon de Grelle said, of Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler was self-taught, and he made no attempt to hide that fact. The smug conceit of the intellectuals, their shiny ideas, packaged like so many flashlight batteries, irritated him at times. His own knowledge he had acquired through selective and unremitting study. He knew far more than thousands of diploma-decorated academics. I do not know anyone who ever read as much as he did. He normally read one book every day, always first reading the conclusion index in order to gauge the work's interest and importance for himself. He had the power to extract the essence of each book, then store it in his computer-like mind. I heard him talk about complicated scientific books with faultless precision, even at the height of the war. His intellectual curiosity was limitless. He was readily familiar with the writings of the most diverse authors, and nothing was too complex for his comprehension. He had a deep understanding and knowledge of religious leaders like Jesus Christ and Luther, Calvin, Savonarola of literary giants like Dante and Schiller and Shakespeare and Goth, analytic writers like Renan and Gobineau and Chamberlain and Sorel. He trained himself in philosophy. He studied Aristotle and Plato. He could quote entire paragraphs from memory. For a long time, he carried pocket editions with him. Nietzsche taught him much about willpower. His thirst for knowledge was unquestionable. He had hundreds of hours studying the works of Tacitus, military strategists like Clausewitz and empire builders like Bismarck. Nothing escaped him. World history or the history of civilization, the study of the Bible and the Talmud, and uh, the philosophy of uh, Thomas and all the masterpieces of Homer, Sophocles, Horace, Ovid, and Cicero. He knew Julian the apostate as if he had been his contemporary. His knowledge extended to mechanics. He knew how engines worked. He understood the ballistics of weapons. He astonished the best medical scientist with his knowledge of medicine and biology. The universality of Hitler's knowledge may surprise or displease those unaware of it, but nevertheless, it was a historic fact. Adolf Hitler was one of the most cultivated men of the century, much more so than Churchill, an intellectual mediocrity, or uh, Roosevelt or Eisenhower, who never got beyond detective novels. So that's a quote in 1993 by General Leon de Grelle who actually knew Adolf Hitler, definitely one of these um, shock. Quotes because that's not the way he has been caricatured in the entertainment industry. Well, December 1931, another shock claim of six million Jews uh, dying in southeastern Europe, uh, and this appears in uh, newspapers in North America. But the key thing of 1932 was the Holodomor, the killing Bahanga, that's the Ukrainian word for killing Bahanga, Holodomor, man made famine occurring mostly in the Ukrainian Republic of the Soviet Union during 1932 to 1933, deliberately planned by Stalin's economic schemes and uh, engineered by Stalin's powerful Jewish brother-in-law, Lazar Kaganovich. And the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is primarily written to give a non-Christian, anti-Christian perspective on the world, the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica estimates 8 million people. Uh, 5 million Ukrainians were starved to death by the Stalin-Kaganovich famine uh, just in 1932, but some estimates run as high as 10 million. In fact, I think the official uh, verdict now is 11 million died in the famine genocide aimed at stamping out anti-communist resistance and starving anti-red peasants in Belarus, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Russia. And despite the Soviets denying there was famine and a news blackout in most of the American press, which of course was run by the globalists. The truth about the Holodomor did become known in the West. But unlike the Lenin terror famine of 1921, this time, no outside assistance was permitted. And so millions died a slow death. Many resorted to cannibalizing dead bodies. And with this famine, Stalin and his henchmen destroyed any remaining resistance to the revolution. In 1932, German elections were held under violent conditions. The paramilitary of the Reds were battling with the NSDAP brown shirt. And again, many people do not know the context. Why was the, the uh, SA, the brown shirts, and uh, why were they fighting in the streets? Well, because the Reds were breaking up any... Uh, alternative party gatherings. And so no one was able to have free speech in Germany because the communists would be beating them up and attacking the speakers and the people who attended the meetings. And so the shirts or the SA were particularly there to protect people who wanted to attend a nationalist gathering. And uh, at this point now, uh, Hitler in 1932 wins 230 Reichstag seats, the largest political party, but still not a majority because there's 608 members in the Reichstag at this point. And so now it's, it's deadlock. NSDAP 196, Social Democrats 121, Communists 100, Center Party 7, and nine minor parties split another 100 seats. Germany's politics were chaotic, paralyzed, divided. And the policies of the Chancellor Heinrich Brüning shrunk the economy by 25%, and the German deficit kept growing and unemployment was over 30%. Suicide was epidemic. People were committing suicide in Germany by the thousands. And in addition to the parliamentary Reichstag and the chancellor, Germany had a president with some unique powers. And that president was the hero of Tannenberg, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, World War I, field marshal, national hero, politically independent. Uh, And so on the basis of the NSDAP's 196 seats in order to end the gridlock, Hindenburg considered Hitler to be um, the chancellor, but uh, uh, he gave to pressure from others not to give him that position just yet. So to better understand the fears of communism and the anarchy of the revolutionaries, which affected so many Germans and Europeans prior to World War II, just consider some of the high profile murders, which occurred in Europe and America during the preceding decades. In 1866, there were assassination attempts made on German Chancellor Bismarck. 1874, second unsuccessful assassination attempt made on Bismarck. 1878, unsuccessful assassination attempts made on Kaiser Wilhelm. 1878, also second assassination attempt made on Kaiser Wilhelm. 1881, the Tsar of Russia assassinated after four previous attempts had failed, but they finally assassinated the Tsar of Russia in 1881. 1893, the Mayor of Moscow assassinated. 1884, eight policemen were murdered in Chicago by communists. 1894, the Prime Minister of France assassinated. 1897, Prime Minister of Spain assassinated. 1900, King of Italy assassinated. 1901, American President William McKinley assassinated. All kinds of unsuccessful assassination attempts, including of the King and Queen of Spain in 1905. The Queen of Spain was uh, daughter of Queen Victoria. Nineteen o five, the Grand Duke of Russia was assassinated, who was also Prime Minister of Russia. Nineteen eleven, Prime Minister of Russia assassinated. King and Crown Prince of Portugal assassinated. Nineteen o eight, the Empress of Austria uh, assassinated by a communist. And of course, nineteen fourteen, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the throne of Austrian Empire, assassinated with his wife Sophie. Nineteen nineteen, Reds bombed Wall Street, in New York. Thirty eight people killed. 1919, the U.S. Attorney General's home, the private home of uh, Attorney General Mitchell Palmer bombed by communists. 1922, unsuccessful assassination attempt made of the president of France. 1932, package bomb destroyed the home of an American judge, uh, killing his wife. 1933, the mayor of Chicago assassinated. And so understanding that millions and millions and scores of millions of people had been murdered, Between 1917 and 1933, uh, in the Soviet Union in particular, and with red revolutionaries murdering people even in these countries, it's understandable that the people were anti-communist. And so uh, we get to the point where uh, in 1933, President Hindenburg, after two more parliamentary elections, uh, with Germany ungovernable, with record unemployment, with massive amounts of suicides, and with people seeing no hope, with huge amounts of unemployment in the multiplied millions, President Hindenburg concerned that the communists would exploit the chaos and attempt another revolution in Germany. He recognized the only party that could stop this were the nationalists. And so to protect Germany from communism, President Hindenburg relented and asked Adolf Hitler to become chancellor of Germany. Now Hitler's powers were limited, but the NSDAP now had the upper hand in a very unstable government. And the communist trade union leaders now moved to destabilize them, called for massive strikes. And the American press, which was owned by Zionists, declared a war on Germany. And there was a lot of chaos on the go. And then at that point, the Reichstag, the, the German parliament, was uh, burned, arsoned uh, by communists. And the evidence really is strong on that. A communist party member, uh, uh, Marius van den Luber, Uh, was found in the place. And while many historians have tried to promote the theory that Hitler himself staged the fire and blamed the Reds for it. There's no evidence at all to support this theory. And there's lots of evidence, including from British and other journalists who on the scene at the time, who convinced that indeed, the Communists did burn down the the Parliament, the Reichstag in Germany, immediately after Adolf Hitler was made uh, the um, head of state, the Chancellor, And so February 27th, 1933, the Reich starts burned by the uh, Reds. And uh, this leads to also at about the same time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes to power at about the same time that Adolf Hitler does, and uh, he starts a socialist new deal in America. And this puts us to the stage of what leads to the Second World War. These are setting the stage, nationalism versus globalism. And uh, in the next section next week, we can look at the plot to destroy Germany from 1933 to 1939. Back to
1: you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. You must be exhausted after that one. That was a, a very interesting presentation, as always. <laughs> and before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find their, your work, rather, and how they can contact you?
0: My personal email is peter. At frontline.org.za, or ZA as the Americans would say it. So, Peter at frontline.org.za, that's my email. Website, frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontlinemissionsa, SA short for South Africa. Frontlinemissionsa.org, that's our website. I'm also on social media if people want to find me on Facebook, both Frontline Fellowship and Peter Hammond. I look forward to hearing from any listeners who'd like to learn more. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Thank you so much Peter and also folks we can't run through all of them but Peter has several websites that are always listed in the post for our shows together at uh, achradio.com sorry achshow.com I'm not doing very well I just bought that uh, domain name on uh, Sunday and I'm already getting it wrong now it's achshow.com I bought it so that it was easier for people to remember uh, apart from myself obviously so anyway that being said uh, also Peter hosts all the shows that we did we have done together Uh, there's a link to that in the post for our shows as well so that being said i want to thank peter so much for joining me again on our weekly show you have been listening to the real story behind the bad war by ms king part three i want to thank all of you for listening peter and i'll be back with you at the same time next week i'll of course be back with until then folks bye for now